This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. This week we host Rob Miller. He's a competitive climber, starting strength coach, and author of The Map of Athletic Performance. If the name rings a bell, it's because Rob has been in the game for a long time. Not only has he been making his way up mountains for 25 years, he was a pioneering figure in CrossFit starting around 2007. As a sports-specific athlete, Rob's main motivation for training came from the desire to dominate climbing. What were the influences for Rob's development of the map of athletic performance? As he candidly discusses, the simple yet comprehensive diagram was a way to combat public stupidity and personal frustration. The conversation eventually leads to Rob's affirming stance on strength development, even in sports whose demands are highly specialized. Rob Miller is a lifelong advocate for smart training principles, including limiting exposure to high volume and low intensity. His anecdotes and research surrounding the topic are eye-opening, particularly if you compete in a fringe sport. This knowledge and so much more on this week's Power Athlete Radio. This is episode 122. Yeah, let's just pretend like we just started live. All right. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. This is Denny. I'm joined with John, Luke, Bob. And today our guest is Rob Miller, OG Rob Miller. Uh, Rob, thanks for taking the time to kind of talk some shop with us, bud. All right, man. I'm happy to be here. How's it going? It's going good. Uh, I'm excited about this one. Uh, You know, the reason I reason I called you OG is, uh, you know, at least for myself back in like 07, when I started, you know, I found out like CrossFit and started watching all the videos and just kind of like jumping into all that information that's out there on the main site. It seemed like a lot of those videos are like you, um, Josh Everett, Greg Amundsen, uh, Eva Twardokin, you know, Nicole Carroll, Annie Sakamoto. It's like you guys were it seemed like you were just guinea pigs to that whole, you know, the Glassman's whole thing. And, and uh, maybe, maybe we can just kind of get the ball rolling and you can just give us a little bit of background about that, um, your area of expertise and like your, uh, you know, the, your, your stance on, on strength training in general. All right. Um, that's um, a wide open field of um possible conversation. Back in um, 07, when you were um, aware of all these videos and the folks that you just named, I guess that was pretty much my peak of involvement with CrossFit. And um, at the time, I was still a semi-pro athlete um, in the world of climbing. And being a climber, it's a fringe sport. It's not like football. It's, it's not like CrossFit is these days. Um, mm. 
we don't really um, have any collective body of knowledge that we all agree upon as far as training goes, but through 25 years of climbing experience, I've just come to um, learn and know empirically that even small gains in strength at this point, you know, 25 years down the line, have the biggest impact um, for me as a climber. Climbing is one of those words means a lot of different things. Kind of like when you say the word fitness, you don't really know what you're talking about until you kind of narrow it down. And so since there's so many different kinds of climbing, it might be a good idea to just kind of describe a couple of, of the different kinds of climbing. And when you're um, bouldering, you're without gear, you're close to the ground, you are relying on your strength and power. That is skill set always, but the capacity, the physical qualities that get you to the top successfully are often strength and power. Um, short duration, high intensity. And then you have root climbing, which you're standing at the base of the cliff, you want to get to the top, you uncoil your rope, you have your partner holding the other end of a brutal conditioning workout. Um, you know, maybe people get strong for a little bit doing stuff like that because they're not really adapted to anything. Or, like in my case, I was highly adapted to something, the sport of climbing, but this new thing came in and just kicked my ass, and we did a bunch of random stuff, as you know, and I thought this was pretty cool, but um, um, the results were only lasted so long until I started really um, doing a lot more Olympic weightlifting at the time. Um, and kind of lean more towards the strength workouts. And I didn't work out every day like a lot of those folks do. I think Eva Twardikins and I were really the only athletes who were actually doing a sport. Everybody else was kind of working out to work out. So not much skill involved in, in the basic workouts. And I think why the weightlifting, the barbell, Mostly Olympic back then caught my eye was because it, it required a, a very serious skill set that you would never be able to master. You'd always be able to, you know, clean and jerk a little bit more efficiently, recruit a little bit more coordinated. You can always add another kilo and never really run into the limit of what you're capable of doing. There's no, there's no ceiling. And it's one of the things I love about climbing is that there is no ceiling to how well you can do it. So I guess one thing for the li listeners that they should know is that a common misconception between free climbing is that as a free climber, you can fall and the rope will catch you, even high off the ground. What most people think of automatically is free soloing. So that's when you do it without a rope. And you're, the stakes are very high. It's very much a mental game. You are taking a calculated risk. You are pulling a stunt of something that you think you can pull off. And um, although it might be exhilarating and I've done a little bit, little bit of that. That is not what I'm known for. I'm known for, you know, climbing 
cliffs as tall as as tall as you as tall as El Cap in Yosemite, which to give it context, you know, if you were sitting in Chicago looking at the skyline and looking up at the Sears Tower, you would have to imagine three Sears Towers, one on top of the other, on top of the other, before you got to the, the summit of El Cap. And so this this is the scale that we're talking about. We're talking about many days on the wall when it's really difficult. And yeah, there's some, some moderately difficult stuff that you can race up in a day, and that's, um, that's often a little bit more of a stunt than it is a, a serious climbing um, achievement, similar to what Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen did over the winter that I think NBC News had live streaming cam of their, their ascent, dubbed the, the hardest free climb in the world. The, those guys are up there pushing the limits of what was physically possible for for 19 days. And so I still do that and still working on stuff. And um, yeah, I guess um, I'm, I'm, I'm still at it after all these years, staring down 50, still up on the cliff, um, putting up new free lines on right up the middle of El Cap. So when did you start? So you're 50 years old now, or staring down 50. When what was your when did you first start climbing? Uh, early 20s. So I didn't have the advantage of adapting my fingers and my elbows and stuff like that as yeah. a child. Right. Which is, right. and when kids started climbing hard, um, there was a lot of concerned folks thinking that they were gonna that they were going to end up with arthritis by the time they were 20 or 30, and and that is just not the case. Well, yeah, I mean, especially if you start something like climbing or even really any sport, you end up developing those neuromuscular pathways and metabolic systems uh, that you can only develop as a child. But, uh, I mean, that's, she said, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, kind of how uh, I, reached, you know, I, I recently reached out to Rob to get him on the podcast. Uh, as a result, I just happened to be, uh, Mark Ripto uh, was driving up to, Colorado. Uh, he has a house up there, and he gave me a call, and we just like to, you know, he's on a long, on a long road. He'll call up and you know bullshit and talk shit to me, and um, we were actually talking about Olympic weightlifting, and he he asked me, he goes, you know, why do you think people create so much uh, nuance and put so much, um, I mean, almost like uh, you know, the snatch clean and jerk is like trying to solve some fucking mythical riddle that like nobody can figure out. And there's so much. Uh, uh, you know, argument about, you know, bar pathway and all these key things. And I was like, I, I, I don't know. And his, his contention is it's a repetitive sport. So all you have to do is snatch clean and jerk. There should be one efficient way to do it. And if you dedicate your life to just doing two movements over and over again, uh, if you are a good athlete and a well-trained athlete, you should be able to master them in a short amount of time. And, uh, you know, he was talking about, uh, you know, the difference between what he thought the you know, problem with American weightlifters was not having a pool of, talented enough lifters compared to what the world mark or the, the world stage. And I thought that was a pretty good contention because in our country, if you're a big, strong dude, you're probably not getting into Olympic weightlifting. You're probably either going to be, you know, playing baseball or football or, you know, some other uh, obviously more lucrative sport. And as that kind of came right. up, we started talking about the difference between repetitive athletes versus non-repetitive athletes. And he asked me, he goes, have you ever read Rob Miller's piece that he wrote for us? And I had not. So, I did a little quick search, pulled it up, and as I was reading it, uh, it was probably one of the most spot-on 
uh, best things I've read in strength conditioning in so long in a field that is so fraught with bullshit and, uh, you know, people making mountains out of molehills. Um, I was literally blown away. I thought it was, uh, it was right on, and it's coming from somebody who's, you know, having played professional football, I obviously have a different point of view than you do, uh, you know, being a, you know, uh, you know, high-level climber, but everything was, was so spot on. So uh, I read it, and that's when I reached out and said, God, we got to get this guy on the podcast a little bit and talk about his athletic map and also kind of some of his, um, you know, the things that he noticed in terms of, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, obviously you get into a deal where it's, you know, kind of similar to CrossFit, where it's this idea of constantly varied, increased work capacity and all these key factors. So you, you dive into that program figuring out this is the, you know, this is the path to make me a better climber and then come to the realization that the only way you're going to become a better climber is one climbing and increasing your strength through basic barbell movements, which is, uh, you know, is a pretty interesting life cycle. We've seen this for years where people come in and, you know, the best thing that CrossFit's ever done is it's introduced people and got people into lifting weights, you know, basic barbell moments, snatch, clean, and jerk, and just, you know, a basic style of training. And as they get into this thing, you know, they people either keep chasing that, you know, chasing the dragon, keep chasing that Metcon high, or they get into something where they realize, like, hey, I, I really enjoy this lifting weights thing. I feel stronger. It allows me to go out and do the things that I want, and I'm not just in the gym chasing the dragon, chasing the dragon. So... That's why you're here, and I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about that. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. What was it, John, that that you liked about um, the way Rob lays that out with with his like bullseye graph, and then the you know the the article that um, is that comes with that his description? Did you? I know one thing that I liked about it was just like how how detailed he gets um, by describing like the development between a beginner and intermediate and more of the advanced athlete and and well, how the, that gradually works outward in that model. That, that's, well, what's, that's what struck me. Well, it, it makes sense as an athlete yeah. becomes more advanced. Obviously, they go out, but the thing which was most interesting, and I don't even think he even put it in there, is most people never get out of the beginner intermediate and basically scratch the intermediate phase. So like most athletes, and I think that's what I liked most about, uh, and actually if I were to do it, I would have had it gone the exact opposite way. I would have had the, the bigger group be the beginners, and then as you come in, it gets very, very small. And what I realized is that, uh, you know, however you look at the, the way he set up his circles, uh, I don't believe, and we, we run into this all the time, because we obviously have different templates uh, based on a level of somebody's adaptation and how exposed they are to training. And a lot of people right. never really ever get to the advanced template. They never even get to that professional yeah. level. And it's because... But, one, how, but how great is it that they want to get there in a week or two? Oh, yeah. Well, that's that, that's, that's a whole other problem. It's because people are unrealistic. About no, I showed this. up four days in a row. Yeah, I think I, I'm ready. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. And you're like, dude, uh, most people... And, you know, like like our the intermediate template we use, we use with 99% of people that aren't amateurs. Mm -hmm. And they ask about the advanced. And I'm like, if you got to ask big man, you can't afford it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's this idea that people want to try to get to that level and they're like, well, how do I know I'm there? And I'm like, probably when you stop asking me stupid fucking questions. And, uh, you know, and more importantly, that would be you know, a really, that would be a really good indicator. Yeah. 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 Like, and you know, you stop asking me stupid yeah, questions. Just and like more that importantly, question you, just asked. you contact me with something that's both interesting and enlightening where I think like, wow, okay, that's, that's a great thought. Like, okay, so tell me about your training. And the other thing too, is if you're training just to train, there's a good chance that you're never going to get out of that intermediate phase. I mean, Rob looked at it and said, okay, you know what, my, uh, I'm a professional climber. 
and this is who I am. And um, the one thing I've learned the most about professional athletes or people that are high-level athletes, they know exactly who they are. Like, and uh, that's something I've talked about for years is um, a high-level athlete makes no illusions about who he is. Like, I was a big punch guy. I fucking hit hard. Like, I, I played a style of game. And if a guy was, like, a better athlete than me, I was not going to go out there and try to finesse him. Like, I wasn't ever going to go out there and dance with the guy. It just wasn't who I was. So I stayed in my wheelhouse, and I knew where it was. Rob's like, hey, uh, I can do some of these things, but at the end of the day, like, the nine-day ascent on El Capitan, that's who I am. And he's like, this is what I do, this is what I enjoy, and this is where I'm the best in the world. And he's not trying to, to you know, go out and do everything at once. You find something good, you stay in your wheelhouse, and you become the best of your wheelhouse. And that's that specificity of being a professional because nobody's just professionally good at everything. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at something like CrossFit where it's like, you know, the, the goal of CrossFit is, uh, you know, to be mediocre at everything. I want to be yeah. average. You know, the best, the CrossFit Games winner isn't the best at anything. They're just uh, the person that sucks the least at everything. Yeah. You know, or, or the guy that finishes middle of the road. I mean, you see, like, if you finish 2 through 10 on every workout, you win the CrossFit Games. And, you know, something like that. But when you get into being... Uh, something very specific like what I did or what Rob did, uh, you know, being mediocre at it, you know, it's like I'd rather be, yeah, it's not going to happen, but it's like, yeah, I knew exactly what it was. Yeah, it's like you, you have to be able to know yourself, and I think where people really fuck up that division is, one, they're not honest with themselves, and two, they don't have a proving ground, and three, they just don't know who they are. Um, so the thing that I really liked about reading Rob's article is one, he knew exactly who he was and he looked at it from an objective standpoint. And I really liked the idea between repetitive versus non-repetitive athletes. And the problem is if you try to train non-repetitive athletes in repetitive movement mm -hmm. patterns exclusively, yeah. it fucking destroys who they are. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, it's like, um, you know, like when we train football players, for example, they lift weights, they run, they sprint, they do all these things. But at the end of the day, all we're looking to do is sharpen their tools and create an environment where they're strong and healthy and stable so that they can take what they learn in the weight room and then they can apply it out on the field. And then at that point, they have to go do drills. They have to do their sport-specific, their SPP-type work. And, you know, and it's like if you never leave the weight room as a football player and you never work the technique, you're not going to fucking last very long. So yeah. but whereas you watch a repetitive athlete, like somebody who works snatch, clean, and jerk every day, well, every day in the gym, what do they do? They snatch, clean, and jerk. They go to a contest, and they snatch, clean, and jerk a little bit heavier in a singlet. And, you know, there's lights. And, I mean, it's like, you know, they're effectively training for the test, whereas there's no way for Rob to train for the test without actually doing the test. And I really liked how he kind of cycled this volume and intensity where he talked about, you know, um, obviously you're pushing different intensity levels based on the, not necessarily, like, how hard you're climbing, but the length at which you're climbing. So what I liked is that um, here was somebody that, had done a style of training, knew exactly who he was, took a step back, looked at it objectively, and then uh -huh. was able to make uh, a system based yeah. on it. And um, it was actually, to me, uh, it's one of the best things I've read in the world. Well, what it was, it was like a, a really succinct version of what are you training for? Yeah. And, you know, and Rob, I think, uh, you know, how long, how long were you having these discussions ad lib with clients, with other coaches? Uh, you know, with or other how many times did you, did you draw yeah. this well, no, before, on, on like before. far napkins and you're like looking at it like uh, kind of like we did with the pillars? Yeah, before you yeah. before you actually uh, formalize this. And I was curious, I'm curious what like the infancy stages of these discussions would be like. <clears throat> I just kind of got tired of describing the novice effect to people because you have to introduce basic physiological concepts, and it doesn't matter 
who you are, even if you're the questioner, most people glaze over when you talk about rate of adaption, genetic potential, and so it pretty much just kind of came out of frustration. It's like, look, you know, the kid who first plays football because he watched the Packers Thanksgiving Day and had to go out and do it, he's occupying like a marble's worth of his genetic potential of something, say, like a beach ball. You know, and he goes to middle school and he's occupying maybe a golf ball's worth of his genetic potential or expressing a golf ball's worth of his genetic potential of an over of the beach ball. And then he goes on to college or he goes on to high school, he's got a baseball's worth. In college, he's starting to fill it out a little bit more and actually really start to occupy some space. And that's really pretty much how it began. And then I said, look, if you understand that, then you got to understand that all these people here in the gym, they're just beginners. They're not serious athletes. They're not expressing anything of their genetic potential, so they're able to do this kind of stuff. And the program's so watered down with a bunch of random stimulus that they're able to kind of elongate. It's sort of a good business plan, elongate that adaptive process over time. So when you check in on a various metric, whether it's a time on a wad or a weight lifted, they're so slowly increasing over time <laughs> that you retain your clients for years because you could have gotten them there in just a matter of months with a, a better training program. And so pretty much was born out of frustration talking to lay people about the fact that strength is going to drive all those other goals um, a lot more effectively than endurance or, or practicing balance or coordination or accuracy or agility. Um, one of the things that I actually would have liked to have put in the map, which I kind of bring in now as the conversation's a little bit more refined is that beginner stage, which is a large amount of volume of the overall circle. It's pretty much when you acquire the basic skills, you know. And so of those skills, you know, we're looking at balance, coordination, accuracy, agility to use, you know, the terminology. And then in that intermediate phase, you actually have to switch from those skill sets and you actually have to focus on a capacity that's going to improve your performance more. You take those skills to the nth, driving whether it's endurance, power, or strength, um, depending on the sport that you're doing. As a climber, you would take all those skill sets and you would put it into the greatest intensity that you can as a boulderer and slowly work the capacity as a climber with those skill sets and skills and capacities of the 10 general physical skills work together up to a certain point where where most people never get at some point you almost have to focus in on the capacities for a period of time so you can have a greater if you have greater strength then you have a greater ability to with to express the subtle differences you need in body position as, say, as a climber. And as a weightlifter, as an, Olymp as an Olympic weightlifter, you already have the skills, but if you could just get stronger, it would be better, a wiser training protocol, to just get fucking strong 
to then express your skill as an Olympic weightlifter um, at, a, at a higher performance level. And so what Olympic weightlifting and what a lot of climbers share is that they both are caught in the, the conventional wisdom is, I just need to practice. I just need to practice. I just need to practice more rather than getting on an intelligent training program, which at some point it's got to turn and focus on strength because strength improves all those other physical qualities. Crawley's original list, 10 general physical skills. Strength has the biggest impact on all those other skill sets, all those other capacities. Rob, you were uh, at my, I believe you were one of the instructors for my level one in Santa Cruz. Um, I think the level one I went up to was the first one Glassman didn't speak at. I think I was like the first one that Dave and Nicole, and I, I'm pretty sure you were there. And uh, I remember when they got, uh, when CrossFit, or I think, I, I can't remember if it was Nicole or Dave, got up to give that talk about the 10 levels of fitness. Um, I always believed that strength was the platform which everything else was built on. So I was like surprised that they listed strength is just another element of fitness because for me strength was the uh, the platform that everything else and the analogy I always gave was um, in uh, 2003 I took a helmet to the shin and broke my leg clean in half and they casted me five days and three weeks later I went out and played and they told me that the fibula bone only supports eight or twelve percent of your body weight so technically you don't really need that bone to play football so being a young stupid player and kind of a wannabe tough guy I was like no problem I'll go out and play and um, the problem was is I couldn't push off on it, I couldn't run, I couldn't really change direction. And so you took away my agility, you took away speed, you took away all the elements of fitness, and the only thing I had, or the elements of athleticism, if you want to call them that, and the only thing I had was uh, was my strength and a big punch and my power. And so literally they, they, were, uh, they asked me, like, what can you do? I'm like, well, you can't run to my side, and I'm not going to be able to cut anybody off, so if you need me to play, it's got to be straight ahead. And um, I ended up going out and uh, ended up making uh, – uh, Madden's horse trailer that game, and ended up handing uh, Warren Sapp his fucking ass with a broken leg. <laughs> and I remember as they were giving that talk, I were, and people asked me about it, and I was like, you know, you guys robbed me of everything, and the only thing that I had was uh, was my strength, and I was able to do my job. Now, if you'd taken away all my strength, and I was still nimble and fast and quick, I wouldn't have been able to do my job. So for me, strength was the platform at which just magnified everything, and the stronger I got and the better I got, uh, the easier everything was for me to do. So it always was kind of an interesting contention for me sitting there listening to that talk and being like, you know, ideally uh, I understood what they were trying to get at, but looking at just strength as just another element of fitness was uh, didn't really jive for me in my world and where I came from. No, you need to prioritize that list if you're going to make some productive reasoning out of it. You know, there's um, the – there's some greats in climbing that have distilled the same message. And, you know, if you read in the article, the legendary John Backer, um, you know, you can have all the endurance in the world, but if you can't do the move, then you can't do the move, you know. And another one that I think you guys would like is without power, there is nothing to endure, you know. So there's, there's a lot of minds that, that think like this. It's just getting through the conventional wisdom is why the map came about because it's so thick with with you know established paradigms that people can't really see the forest for the trees. Well, I mean, which is strength is key. Well, I mean, and, but it, isn't that kind of where all the money's made? I mean, I, I feel like in the uh, 
you know, in the strength conditioning community, actually the fact that they're banking on people getting lost in the forest and not being able to see through the trees is kind of how the money's made. Like, for example, you know, follow my system and you will have shredded apps. And you're like, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's true. Instead of people being like, well, if I work out a little bit more and I eat a little bit less and I get a little bit more sleep, there's a good chance that I'm probably going to lose some body fat and eventually I'll be able to see some, some stomach muscles. Like, it's... It's really not all that complicated, and what I realized is, is the more complicated and actually the more confusing you can make it for people, uh, or the, you know, like the idea of, um, you know, there's some magical adaptation that we don't understand that somehow comes to light when you do this, but just trust us, if you do it, you too will see it. I mean, it's kind of, it's it sounds like dogma, it sounds like religion, um, whereas I look at it like, you know, tell me exactly how it works, and if you don't understand it, then technically you can't really describe it or you can't sell it because if you don't understand it, how are you going to explain it to me? Right. And, and right. Um, you know, that's the, you know, the age old. And then at the end of the day, uh, you know, we, we always use the term, like, what are you training for? And if you're, you know, don't have a, uh, a goal, then technically it's not really training. It's just exercise. So you're going in exercising. Athletes have goals and they train for a specific goal. Like if your deal is to, you know, go some ascent, you probably sit back and you're like, okay, in six months I need to do this ascent. This is what my training program is going to look like, and mm -hmm. I'm going to work towards this goal. And I need, I know I need to do all this work in preparation. Whereas just like, hey, I'm going to go work out today and get sweaty. You know, I mean that's fine too, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a, a huge difference between training and just going and getting sweaty. Yeah, and I think you know, no, Rob, what a term ahead. that you use in in your. Uh, your map is trajectory, right? Yep. So the trajectory. You're moving in a direction. Yeah, there's a, there's a Go goal. Ahead. There's an objective, right? So I, I don't know. I'll, I'll just kind of let you expound on that. Well, training is predicated by a goal, and if you don't have some place you're going and you don't know where you're at, then you are not training by definition. You're just moving your body around. And if you want to get going on a trajectory and have some momentum, then, like John just said, you need to have a plan. And I know I'm going to be somewhere in October, and so I've had a whole year of, of plan, activity, training, to get me to a point that I know I can go to Yosemite with confidence, knowing that I've done what I've done. You know, I've got as strong as I can for 10 months out of the year, trans into conditioning right up into the goal so I don't get burnt out and you know I, sh I show up ready to go you know I don't climb big walls all year round to be a good big wall free climber well, what I do is I train strength for 10 months out of the year and then slowly transition that into more conditioning work and lightly do the maintenance required for full recruitment you know, because at some point near the top of that cliff, I'm going to have to recruit all I got, you know, and I'm going to have diminished reserves 10 days into it. So I need to get even stronger than as strong as I need to be, you know, in that ninth yard, you know. Uh, do you use anything like obviously um, in your training, but like, do you like, uh, because it sounds like your training, or more importantly, the tasks you have in front of you, um, sound more mental than anything. Like, uh, you know, do you do any form of like meditation or any type of like, um, 
I, I don't know, like I just imagined something that's kind of soulless is, uh, you know, here I am, me versus this mountain. This is kind of like such an individualized deal. I'm going to try to climb this thing over the next 9 or 10 or 18 days. Uh, I imagine the training has to be more than just a physical training. There has to be some form of mental, emotional, I don't know, like is there something more that you do to, to kind of make these happen? Man, I try and meet every moment with as much grace as I can, and so it's like an ongoing, you know, practice, moment to moment, day to day, and when life throws you shit, you know, you can get your panties in a wad and upset about it, or you can just say, okay, hey, this is what's happening right now, I didn't plan for this, it's getting in the way of your training, it's getting in the way of everything, and just trying to be not oblivious or ignorant of anything but just trying to meet you know the bullshit of the world with a, a degree of equanimity because bottom line is is every moment is mine and I'd rather not surrender it to some you know tirade or upsetment because you know I think that's taken away from quality of life better quality of life good training protocols better results you know, I've never really bought into the anger thing. You know, people say, ah, oh, it's time to get angry and I got to do this. And I know it works but for a lot of people, but it just doesn't really work for me. And so do I meditate or practice anything like that? No. But every day, you know, is, is that practice for me. So that wouldn't make me religious. It just makes me, you know, thoughtful. Spiritual. I guess I'm spiritual, but not, not, not at all religious of any kind. That was my religion, just being, being kind, being thoughtful, There's, you know, having a good life. So has there ever been a time uh, when you've been on a mountain or been in something where, like, um, you knew that there was something bigger out there? I always imagine, like, uh, you know, and like I, I've never done any climbing, but I've, uh, I remember being at an IMAX theater, and it was uh, had to do something with uh, theater, uh, like a big climbing deal. And I, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I'm like, this has got to be some form of religion or, you know, some Well, I think um, be careful what gives you freedom because you'll surely be addicted to it. And <laughs> going, going, being out, that's why I like the big stuff because when you, you get going and you start at the bottom, you've got all your baggage with you. And by the time you're a quarter way up the cliff, um, that baggage is pretty much gone. And then halfway up the cliff, you're, you're humming, you're glowing. By the time you get to the summit, it's still there with you. It's there with you into the next day. And that's, um, that is my freedom. And so <laughs> after 25 years, I, I'd like to accomplish that same kind of peace and, and kind of equanimity that I have during climbing daily, you know, moment to moment, no matter what life throws you. And I, I touched on that a little bit just a little bit ago. Interesting questions. I wasn't expecting anything like that. I wanted to ask him um, that, I, that I liked in the article was he referred to it as like putting too much time in like junk training, you know, uh, sub-maximal training, 80% um, or less. Um, he used a, a couple good analogies in that uh, with like a wrestler and a tennis tennis player. So maybe uh, Rob, if you wouldn't mind, if you could kind of elaborate on what you what you were really referring to when you were saying, you know, like the the 
kind of like the penalties or the, um, you know, just the athletes like putting in too much time, almost wasting their time training in like 80% or less uh, uh, of a, of a, like a domain, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, so the main difference between becoming proficient as a runner or as a swimmer or as a weightlifter is you can only do what you're capable of doing. There's no practicing a 405 off the floor deadlift if you can only do 365 for a single. Better to pull sets of five or a set of five per week at 335 or 340 and keep that five going up to be able to um, increase your single on the deadlift. Um, runners use the same thing, the build and taper, um, or a lot of volume, um, followed by less volume while increasing the intensity. Swimmers have done it forever too. Um, this model has been disseminated by a climber who wrote a book and a lot of people do um, a build and taper mixing it up with basic prioritization in that um, the prescription it's it's common and I see a lot of people do it um, it's still in vogue mostly because you get really tired people feel like they're getting worked out it's the same same thing as the strength and conditioning world you can you can sell snake oil and it feels good, but it doesn't really work and it can even wear you down. Being the prescription, five weeks endurance, four weeks power, three weeks strength, um, no, three weeks power endurance, and two weeks strength. So essentially you get this huge, that's a long, that's an advanced 10 weeks is an advanced timeline for a training cycle. Um, most people doing it are barely beginners um, or barely intermediate athletes and maybe even beginners. It's that same, same thing that, that John mentioned, you know, the, 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 the beginning athlete just so badly wants to go to advance that they often do. They look to what the advanced are doing, mostly because they're inspirational and that's their job, to be inspiring, to get psyched to train. It's not to do what they're doing. And so what people are doing is a bunch of junk miles, getting worn down, bumping up the intensity at the end of a rigorous training of a lot of volume, and they do end up hurt. You spend a lot of time on small extremities, fingers, elbows, shoulders, a lot of stress is on those joints. So being fatigued and then ramping up the intensity at the very end of a training cycle kind of is counterproductive. So the idea of intensity isn't just, um, let's see, so intensity isn't just maximum intensity. For climbers there's, 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 an, there's an aspect of rehearsal involved. You get to try again and again. You, you go to a boulder, you sit in front of it, and you try the moves, and eventually you either do it or you don't. 
And what I recommend is intensity just beyond your current ability. And so it, you could call it 101%, you could call it 110% intensity, but if a climber is training, then they need the challenge that's just beyond their current capacity so they reach. They have something to reach for, and if they don't know how to dig, they're never going to do it, but it teaches them that, and it's that whole idea of recruitment. Recruitment of not just maximum, well, that's how you recruit maximum intensity in the world of climbing, is you give them a problem, a challenge that's just beyond their current ability. You give them that carrot, and that's their homework, that's what they do. And as long as there's progress in that choreographed, rehearsed boulder problem or route, then that is a good training stimulus. And that's primarily, that's primarily what a climber wants to fill most of their training time with, is their, is their climbing. Uh, you know, Charlie Francis, who is Ben Johnson's sprint coach, um, you know, is kind of the, the sprint school that I come out of where you're either running as fast as you can, like over 92%, or you're doing recovery kind of work, like tempo work, and like basically training in that no man's zone, which is 76% to like 91.5%, doesn't do anything for developing strength gains. And what we found is that most, most athletes, like sprinters, climbers, and different people that train in that no man's zone never really push their intensity to the level they need for improvement. But in contrast, when we look at the majority of strength training, like obviously if you're going to pull a 5RM or a, or a heavy 5 on a deadlift or a squat, most of the training for the barbell work is done in that 75 to like 90%. So it's kind of a strange dichotomy in that you have the majority of strength training and the majority of barbell work done in the you know in a percentage that doesn't necessarily enhance speed or else you know athletic performance. No, I I remember uh, yesterday you and I I asked you the same question if you had if you had heard of like a vertical integration model and um, I'm glad that John backed me up on that one too because I I wasn't sure if if that was really like what Charlie Francis was doing was like a build and taper or you know if uh, how Rob talks about in his article um, about how important it is to have the climbers performing at like at the high intensity a few times a week because that uh, that's where you're going to see um, you know like any kind of a, a breakdown in the technique and and kind of get the biggest bang for the buck so well, I'm glad that you backed up on that one, John. Well, when I read Rob's stuff, it uh, it was totally in line with what Charlie Francis and kind of what we have found in our own training, and more importantly with uh, what we do here, is that you know submaximal efforts leave uh, submaximal results. Now, if you're going to go out and run, and you think that you know running at 75% or even 80% of your you know fastest time, you know for repeats, is going to somehow build your top end speed, it's not. Um, you know, but it, what, what was interesting, and I always kind of, you know, have pointed this question to different people, especially to come out of the Charlie Francis school, is, uh, and if you look at even his strength training, and he makes a distinction in it, if you look at his vertical integration and how he really kind of cycles it, obviously as the intensity goes up and the volume increases for the running and the plyometrics and the jumps, obviously you have to have a natural decreasing of the strength movements and just in terms of volume. So. Uh, Charlie's deal was that you never really ratchet back intensity, but you definitely start ratcheting back volume as, as one kind of goes up and it's kind of a, you know, uh, the lines kind of pass each other because at the end of the day, you're not training a sprinter 
uh, you know, his performance isn't predicated on his ability to lift weights. It's his, it's his ability to go out there and run on the track. It's just like I'm sure Rob's never been on the mountain and passed a climber who's been like, hey, what's your back squat? No, I mean, it's like, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, all of these things are tools to help athletic performance. And at some point, what Rob talked about is that he has a ratcheting back of volume of the barbell movements as his intensity goes up for his sport-specific deal. And he started talking about, um, you know, training, uh, uh, you know, training a minimal amount to keep his uh, motor units firing, his body strong, and all these things. But at the end of the day, like, only crazy people think that they can have volume and intensity high at all times in all places. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, I guess in the beginner circle you can. Well, you can. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's how we know you're a beginner. Mm -hmm. If you can ramp up volume and intensity on a linear progression and keep going to the moon, then we know you're a beginner because, what, a tree doesn't grow to the sky. Right. You know, and then at some point when all of a sudden that shit implodes on you, then that's when you're like, oh, you're an intermediate now. Why is it? Because not everything works. Right. And then we see the novice effect, which is why when people get into something like a CrossFit and all of a sudden they come from doing Zumba curves or whatever bullshit they come out of, then all of a sudden they get into something like CrossFit, that's its Aubrey film, you know, some capacity training, some barbell, and they start doing this kind of mixed modal and more importantly their first evolution or their first exposure to barbell training. All of a sudden in that first three months, People make phenomenal gains. And then what happens after that three months? It yep. fucking, it do. It literally tapers off. And mm -hmm. then they wonder, and then what, what do they think? What do I got to do? Do I, do I add more volume? Do you add more intensity? Do you change your diet? Do you get more sleep? Do you take supplements? Do you just get more fucking gear? I mean, that's it, it, that's a life cycle. Right. So, Rob, I mean, uh, going, I guess, along this kind of this vein, you know, it seems that the, the route climbing is, is really heavy on that endurance side, and it takes a certain mentality. I mean, you know, we people kind of look at the endurance athlete, the ultra marathoners, the trail runners, and kind of, I guess, give them shit within the CrossFit world, because they don't look like the Spartan or like the, you know, your Lucas Parkers or all these jack dudes. But one thing I got to commend these guys on is they're mentally tough, but to the point almost that they're stubborn sometimes. And I was curious if... Uh, you know, what you've learned over the years, uh, whether through injury or poor training, and just like kind of what were those mistakes and what would be those those top pointers you would give uh, young Rob Miller and uh, and how have you humbled yourself either, like again, through injury or just through totally being being totally unprepared on a climb? <clears throat> yeah, what would I say to the young Rob Miller? Um, I've thought about that question a lot and it would be to have learned how to deal with volume instead of keeping it high all the time, um, which I did, you know, I was of the, the more is better school of thought and um, that's how I ended up getting injured and when you're injured you can't train, you can't climb, you can't develop your skills. And so it's taken a lot of hard knocks and I'm glad I'm tough because I've been able to keep going, but I think um, if I had known a little bit more about how to keep the intensity up um, and reducing the volume, the overall volume, doing the right amount of volume, um, given to where I was at the time, that would have that would have gone a long way, you know. And to get the volume up, what has to happen? The the intensity has had to go down. So following the program that was, you know, written for climbers, published, just because it's published doesn't mean, this is before the internet, just because, just because it's published doesn't mean it's gospel. And so, yeah, I really wish I'd 
I really wish I'd known how to to taper and while keeping the intensity high. A little bit higher intensity for the early years and a little bit less volume. You know, it, it's all about the right amount. You know, it's not less, it's not more, it's the right amount given the day, given the cycle. One of our good friends, Steve Brewer, made a comment. Uh, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, he's, uh, what does he say? Uh, if you're going to be hard, or no, if you're going to be stupid, you better be hard. And like that was like he's a he's a Navy SEAL, and he's like you know they bring in guys, and they got two types of guys that are either fairly smart, or they figure it out, and he's like if a guy's dumb, he better be hard as nails. And so I always wonder when I look at training, like are people being smart or are they just being hard? You know, because if you're not going to be smart, you got to be hard, and a lot of people that aren't one or the other end up imploding. And uh, you know that I think is becomes more and more apparent as you start you know kind of getting out to the professional level. I'm sure you've seen high level climbers guys that had a great, had a lot of potential and a lot of upside that either uh, overworked themselves or didn't meet their potential because they didn't understand how to periodize their training or more importantly how to attack it or how to kind of plan it out. I mean, I, I can think of for every good player I know, I can think of a hundred good players that never got a chance because they either couldn't handle the volume of training getting there or they, you know, injury or whatever. And it just, it's pretty interesting when, uh, people start looking at, you know, kind of the, the top people and they go, oh, like, let me look at this guy and, and that's who I'm emulating. They don't realize that there's thousands of guys that you have never heard of that have either tried the same thing or were at that guy's level because they did something stupid. They obviously didn't get to that level. And I just wonder if, you know, uh, I'm sure that same thing has happened for you or, you know, that guy had so much potential but never met his potential or never even got a chance to get there because of injury or poor training or just doing something stupid. One of the things I've kind of observed over the years is that the people who are genetically gifted in, in the world of climbing, the percentage is not so high as the world of football, right? It, um, professional football, there's, there's a lot of genetically gifted people, and so it's kind of a different scenario in that the really genetically gifted climbers, um, not only were they born with the right stuff, but they're able to endure and withstand um, unintelligent training practices and not hurt themselves because they're fucking tough. And it's not like we have a 50 percentile totally genetic gifted um, demographic to work with. We've, we've got pretty much 95% just regular Joes in the climbing world with maybe 5% of truly genetically gifted climbers. So we don't really that doesn't come out in the wash and so I can't really speak to your question specifically but what I've noticed is that what the average climber likes to emulate is something that a more genetically gifted climber who's tough can withstand with mediocre results that the average climber ends up just getting hurt or exhausted so do you think toughness is something that's genetically, uh, you know, do you think people are genetically tough or do you think that's more uh, nature versus nurture, like that's more of a product to your environment? Or do you think that's just something like is uh, you relating somebody's genetic, you know, a more gifted genetic individual, and we can look at different genes, like obviously there's different genes for VO2 max and ones for muscle, uh, you know, fast twitch, slow twitch, and all these factors. I always wonder if there's some form of genetic adaptation for actually being tough or it's just bad environments, hard environments make people who they are. Yeah, I don't mean um, toughness mentally. 
Um, I mean, more robust in their, the, you know, the regulatory system, the hormonal regulatory system. Their endocrine systems are just tougher. And I think that's what I, that's what I was saying rather than the mental toughness, which I don't think, I think you, I think there's that, that's for sure. Um, training the gen population, the general population, you, 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 you see that, you know, there's, there's some people that just, don't have aren't aren't able to do it no matter what and um, it's interesting that that there's a lot of people in the CrossFit community who believe that it breeds toughness it, it trains toughness and I believe that's something you're just born with you know you, you either have it or you don't and some people have just realized that they have it because they started you know you know uh, a rigorous program. They were they were born with it. They just didn't realize that they had it. I have two dogs, and uh, they will literally uh, play tug of war until one of them passes out. And my one dog will not go to that place that my other dog will. And uh, it's like that. I guess you know, football. We see it all the time. There's just some people that can continually take the pounding, can dish it out every day, come in, are ready to go. And other guys just get imploded mentally, physically, and just don't have the ability to be able to take the abuse and. Uh, for some reason, I always figured for myself that eventually I would just get injured and not be able to do it, and that's how I would know it was time to get out because um, I, I was never going to give up. Like I, you know, you break my leg and still go play. You know, you, you dislocate a finger during the game and you just reset it yourself and shake your hand off and keep going and playing. And uh, that was kind of what I liked. And I always thought to myself, like, at what point do you walk away? And I guess, I guess, when you can't walk anymore is when yeah. you kind of go. And uh, I ended up getting hurt in my 10th year, and I had a surgery, and so like three months later, I still really couldn't move that well. So I was like, well, I guess it's time to go on and do something else. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of, I'm sure, the same thing for you guys. Uh, for you, it's like when I can't get up that mountain anymore is probably the day that I won't get up that mountain. Mm -hmm. So, Rob, I got a question for you kind of along those veins. Uh, what if, you know, now that you're, you're so far along the trajectory and, and being so enlightened and being able to really whittle down your training and, and – provide us such acute a focus to, to really become a better climber. What does your training look like nowadays? Now, I know you said lift weights for uh, for about, you know, 10 months out of the year, and then as you approach six to eight weeks out, you really focus on the climbing and, and your thresholds of and capabilities of that. But uh, more specifically, you know, set rep mix, uh, are you hammering uh, squats three days a week, two days a week, things like that. What's it look like? I would um, be climbing all year round and focusing more on the strength domain for climbers, which is bouldering. Um, <clears throat> in addition to a lot of heavy pressing and a lot of weighted hangs. Um, I've done a little bit of the strongman um, stuff for grip, um, but generally I just find a really shitty hold that I can barely hang on to. And I learned to control that with my body weight. And then I slowly add a little bit of weight. The time domain is is about seven seconds. Um, initially, very few sets, and I, I build the volume in that seven second paradigm quite a bit. Um, the squatting twice a day. Um, I haven't been able to deadlift recently, but I pretty much just use the basic barbell movements. Um, the deadlift and the bench a lot less than squat and press. Um, generally, I'm just doing sets of five across, <clears throat> three sets of five across, and um, along with the press, maybe just a set of deadlifts, uh, three sets across on the bench, uh, anywhere from 48, four 
to eight sets of seven seconds with um, weighted hangs on a variety of different holds. And I also work the front lever quite a bit. Um, you know, I, ideally I'd be able to get up to five, five seconds um, for, for a set of five across, but I'm barely at like a one one thousand hold lower, come back up to a one one thousand hold lower. But I think getting that front lever strength up for a climber is is ideal um, because <laughs> climbing's a lot easier than a front lever when you got some skills and some other stuff to work with with your feet. So what the training program looks like for for ten months out of the year is a lot of bouldering, a lot of weightlifting, a lot of front levering. And the other thing that's been really helpful for the last couple of years as I'm a lot further down the line is changing the distance between my fingers and the scapula. So there's three, gen there's three kinetic chains that a climber needs to focus on. One's between the fingers and the scapula. That's your grip. You know, the hold, the hold pretty much stops at your scapula, and that's where the interface with the rest of your body, what people like to call core, full body strength, um, is everything between the scapula and the toes. The third thing to focus on eventually, and not initially, but eventually it comes down to changing the distance between where your fingers are at and where your scapula is at. And the torque becomes a lot harder, a lot harder to hold on to a smaller hold. And so that's essentially a one-arm pull-up is what we're looking at there. Weighted pull-ups too. And that's just kind of a general over, overview of the program. Um, but a more specific question? Uh, Rob, um, can you give us like a little bit of outline? I'm, I, I know you have kids, and I have kids. So like my little girls uh, love to climb. So I, I showed a, a YouTube video on how to like climb the uh, uh, like the, the sides of doors, like the door frames. And so now my daughters climb the door frames. They climb the refrigerator. They basically have tried to climb the. Uh, we have a stone fireplace, so now they're trying to do that. They get in the pool, and we have stone facing, and they climb the stone facing, and they like to climb. So the I showed them a video of like uh, the guy had kind of a maybe a, you know 45 degree, maybe even a little steeper uh, piece of, of uh, plywood. And he ended up putting a bunch of different rock holes. And so uh, I'm probably going to, for their birthday, have to build them something like that in the backyard. What kind of training would you, uh, like, you know, if my daughters are three and a half years old and they love to climb, what kind of things would you do to encourage them to climb? Or more importantly, if you were to design a program for, you know, to try to uh, show them or, you know, like, because for me, I'm big into, like, like athletic development for children like and progression. But like uh, slack line, um, you know, obviously like the handholds, that type of thing, hanging. Um, we work on a lot of like just you know dead hangs, and they go to gymnastics. But uh, as I'm sitting here listening, I keep thinking about like my daughters, and more importantly, like these type of uh, you know almost like a training progression. So like let's play a little like mastermind and kind of give me some ideas on what I can do with my kids. Well, make sure you're having fun with them, and and set some routes um, that are easy so they can do them and um, make them more challenging. Have them set holds on the wall that you're going to build them. So primarily you're dealing with kids, so it's got to be fun. And I, I've dealt with a lot of kids from general training to kids specifically. And I guess one thing, you know, that comes to mind is um, 
there's <laughs> there's antagonistic training is real big for climbers and it pretty much amounts to pink dumbbells pressing overhead or re reverse wrist curls and stuff like that and you know the the antagonistic training if it's going to be successful has to be commensurate with the ability to climb um, they're not the same of course but they have to be somewhat in the realm of one another or working in that direction you know teaching your girls how to press overhead will be a real nice antagonistic feature to a longer life climbing without injury um, you know supplementing it with the bench here and there but one thing that I've seen really recently um, never realize is there's a way so there's crimping and there's open hand strength open hand strength is great because your crimping doesn't suffer but when people when people have their knuckles their second knuckle above the pad of their finger it's called crimping um, this brings you higher and so it's a really good skill to have but I've noticed that there's a lot of women who will only crimp and a way to get strong and and safely so is essentially grabbing a pull-up bar with your middle two fingers the ring and middle finger and every one of you can do it no problem and just hang get it comfortable and hang with your body weight and this is actually one of the things if if I were gonna write a program for somebody um, I would flippantly well if I was gonna write a program if somebody asked me well what should I do you know well training simple trainings basic training is doing a little bit of the right thing for a long period of time to get the results and so I would simply say press and do two weighted two finger weighted hangs this is a safe way to to develop open hand strength and it improves your ability to crimp and more specifically to your question with your little girls they'll probably have a preference for crimping but training that two fingers on the pull-up bar for X amount of time 10 seconds four to five sets will probably be pretty easy for them we need to figure out we need to add weight to that and so essentially you know a, an advanced climber can work up to their body weight in addition to their body weight on a two finger middle two finger hangs with both hands and so that's a that's a really clever way I figure I've done this for my own training because of the nature of pockets and pin scars in the rock I only get two fingers and so I train that to get strong for that specifically and just out of dumb luck I figured that I found out that my crimping strength improved a lot and so it's something that I've recommend recommended and built into a lot of climbers programs and then just this past winter I noticed a lot of women weren't able to do anything but crimp to hang on holds and this was a really great way avenue that was safe to get them to climb with open hand strength and get away from crimping all of the time so that that might be a little boon for you right there cool great yeah, that's awesome thank you all right well Dina, did, we are, did. we're on Danny what's up no I was just gonna kind of follow up with that I mean you remember on some of our our earlier podcasts um, with like when Playtech and Rob Wolf were, were talking about child development and they were really pushing like it starts with all that grip training yeah, and climbing. 
Well, I started uh, with my daughters when they were, oh, geez, like days old where I would, you know, and, you know, one of the ways they test um, whether or not children are, you know, progressing or more importantly, if everything's firing is if they can squeeze your fingers. So that's why when you see little babies, like, you kind of yeah. like, you know, then you have like 25 kids, you know this, but they reach out that and squeeze. Yeah, <laughs> that have come forward. Uh, they'll squeeze your fingers, and I remember my little girls were on the changing table, and I reached out and they grabbed both fingers, and I started pulling, and my one daughter was able to pull up, and actually I was almost able to get her hole into a sit-up, and so we started working on it, and within probably about two weeks, she had no problem uh, holding onto my fingers to the point where she could lock her arms, and then I could pull her up into a sit-up, and then the other big one. Um, uh, a friend of mine had talked about, it was actually Jesse, Jesse's dad, uh, Jesse Gray's dad, who was a rugby player, said that in foreign countries they'll hold uh, the babies, uh, you know, like kind of um, like pomp, like basically you put your arm up on one, on one arm and they'll like let the baby straddle it and uh, as a result you kind of support their chest, the kid will start lifting up their head and kind of like end up kind of squeezing their legs to kind of balance and hold on the arm. And he said that they, he watched, uh, you know, um, People from all over the world do this, and it was one of the ways that they train their kids. And so I ended up doing that, and my daughters ended up being able to pick up their head and learn how to arch and bridge and do all these things. And then we started kind of working on being able to pick them up and down. And as I started doing it, the first thing they were able to do was lift their head, put it in position, and then be able to lift themselves up. And we got to the point where I could pull them all the way up to their feet. And it was uh, it was pretty cool to, to be able to do it. But um, like that kind of grip strength and where I kind of got it was if you go back, you look at some of the Russian training manuals to training for a multi-year template or a multi-year lifter, they talked about grip strength can't be developed after, you know, I think it was like into the early 20s, anything after the early 20s, you can't develop grip strength or so they thought. But then we had uh, Bobby's buddy Jed on here who actually said the exact opposite, that he'd seen people yeah. improve grip strength. And I'm sure Rob has seen people that were well in their, you know, uh, past their 20s who decided to pick up climbing that have dramatically increased himself, their strength. Right? Yeah, him himself. So yeah. uh, it just was kind of one of those things that they kind of threw out in a one-paragraph deal, like, yeah. oh, don't worry about grip strength because you can't develop it. You have to develop it as a kid. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, they were saying, like, that leads to longevity. Yeah, I mean... You know, it just leads to, like, overall quality of life, your health. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was, there, there's definitely... Um, what I noticed, in, and you guys have heard me fucking say this stuff for for years, almost to the point of like a broken record, but there was a dramatic difference between guys that I played with who grew up in a more physical environment, and that's where that whole kind of field strong, country strong, farm strong, like wrestlers and kind of other things, like the guys that I played against, when they would hit you or put their hands on you, just had like heavier hands, stronger punches, and just really, really strong hands. And I remember always asking, like, uh... So where'd you grow up? And like, oh, I grew up in, you know, some, you know, Iowa. Oh, hey, so, you know, you know, oh, you grew up on a farm. Oh, your dad had like, you know, 10,000 head of cattle. I mean, or, you know, or we did this or these, you know, the guys that did some form of manual labor. And I always related back to all the, I, I was read a whole bunch of stuff on all the early strongmen, like Louis Sewer. And, and if you go back, you look at all the old time strongmen around the turn of the century, every single one of them was like, some form of manual labor as a kid who ended up getting into strongman. Like Louis Sewer's uh, uh, family worked in a bakery, and he had to carry these 300-pound bags of, uh, of, of flour. And then you look at, like, uh, Alexiev. They found him in some coal mine in Bulgaria or in, uh, in, uh, um, in Siberia, 
and brought him back because they heard the legend of some kid that could outwork the men and he had been breaking coal and rocks in some you know ice cave. So uh, there is uh, you know definitely, definitely, definitely a case to be made for like some form of physical training and like you know not you know coddling or you know at least making them go out. And I think for my kids at least you know they go out and um, you know I, I sat down and looked at like an athletic hierarchy and that what are the skills that as a young athlete, if I could mastermind what skills, and the, the big one for me was like balance and coordination, obviously was something with gymnastics, something where you change orientation, which was swimming, and then, uh, you know, something that teaches, you know, balance, whether it be skateboarding or skiing or, or something that involves sliding and moving in space, and so you can kind of sit down and create these things, but the, the one big one is something that teaches grip strength. Uh, gymnastics is pretty good for that, climbing, but I really believe that, like, when we, we go back and we look at, like, a hierarchy or more important the athletic development, I think that grip is, is so fundamental and um, something we probably don't put enough attention to. And actually, uh, I got to see how uh, funny my grip was when I was actually at the old CrossFit HQ and there was a pull-up bar, and then right above that pull-up bar, they had like a thick bar that was on a set of bearings. So it would spin, and we all like, you know, try to do a pull-up, and then you kind of like kip up and you try to grab it, and the thing starts spinning. And you got to try to hold it and do a pull up on that. I think that was Rob Miller's design. So that was the first time I ever heard about Rob Miller. Well, guys, I, I mean, we're at we're at about just over an hour now. So, Rob, I guess any closing thoughts on grip or anything we've talked about? And on then on top of that, uh, if people want to stay in touch with you or follow you, what's you know where do they find you on social media or what other blogs are you writing for or anything like that? Um, my website's granitepage.com. And uh, pretty much um, shares um, all my thoughts. Um, social media is not something I've really um, embarked on, so I'm not going to find much of Rob Miller out there. But um, the Granite page pretty much has everything, including my contact information. And um, that's that was that. Um, grip training. Mm. Yeah, mechanics have a unnaturally. A naturally, an unnatural grip compared to most people too, because they're holding on to bolts and holding uncomfortable positions. Um, not just um, the the field hands in Iowa and whatnot. Um, yeah, I think I've described grip training a little bit the way I do it. I've tried the Rolling Thunder. Have you? Have you? Um, I really like the Rolling Thunder. Uh, I think it complements my weighted two finger hang quite a bit. Um, for a reason I'm not going to really go into. It's pretty subtle, but I think it's a really fine complement. Um, you can progressively load it and see improvement that way over time. Um, pinch blocks, you know, the classic, you know, rogue stuff that you can find online. Um, the little bighorn is is another one um, where you can get a lot of weight on those things, so they're pretty good for grip training. Um, but for climbers, they're going to be on a hangboard. And I recommend wood hangboards because when your skin is fried from too much climbing, um, whether it's on rock or plastic, you can generally still grit and bear it and get a good workout in um, on wood, um, wood hangboards. Uh, even wood holds, if there's a lot of gyms right now that have an entire wood wall covered in wood climbing holds. So you can actually get your body um, nice and fatigued when your fingers are just, you only have so much skin and that's going to hold you back from recruiting more. And recruiting more for a little bit longer is sometimes just the right, right amount of um, 
right amount of stimulus, you know, depending on the day. That sounds great, man. Uh, yeah, so everybody check it out. The Granite page has a lot of good info on there. And if you haven't, uh, if you have not yet seen the map of athletic performance, give that a Google. It's on Rip's site, Starting Strength, and uh, we're gonna have a link to it in the show notes and everything like that. But uh, all right, guys, thanks a lot, Rob. Again, thanks for uh, thanks for jumping on and thanks for chatting with us. Uh, appreciate it, man. Yeah, it was fun talking with you guys. Thanks for having me, John. Everybody at the Power Athlete staff. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Stay connected with Rob Miller's publications and training by visiting www.granitepage.com. It's a huge resource for climbers and non-climbers alike. Next week, we welcome Highland Games competitor and self-proclaimed Drifta Lifta, Matt Vincent. Until next time, bye!